Sloth is a destroying adversary since it breeds temptation and all manner of sin. Now that David is at ease, having taken dominion over the nations round about, he falls into complacency and sadly shirks his responsibility as king before God, resulting in his utter ruin. This is the 20th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. A roll cutter reading coming from Second Samuel in chapter 11. As we move into chapter 11, the first two verses only, the first two verses only, Second Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And it came to pass after the year was expired, that the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Matthew, writing to us, Matthew in chapter 26, recording for us the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36 through verse 41. But the same spirit, the evangelist writes, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And when he went a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep. And saith unto Peter, What? Could not ye watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower there fades away. The word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel, with all of its warnings, challenges, and rebukes, is preached unto us again this day. Now David's son Solomon tells us that there is a time and a season for everything under heaven. In Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon says this in verse 1. He says, to everything, and I would even stress to everything, there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. Now his meaning is is quite clear, at least it should be clear. The difficulty, however, is not so much what Solomon means, but rather how is one to know the times and the seasons for this purpose or for that purpose? How, how do you figure that out? How do you, how do you navigate times and seasons? Well, note first what he says. He says, to everything, how many things? 
everything. To everything there is a season. In other words, there is a season, there is a period of time whereby things ought to be done if they are to be done properly with success. If things are done during the wrong season, there will be either little profit, no profit, or detrimental results. So there's a season to do things, and then there's a season not to do things. This is why it is essential to know what to do and when you should do it. There is a right time and a wrong time for everything. And while timing is important, it must be coupled with the proper activity to be profitable. Let me give you a few examples. When families are young, when you have young families, and this congregation has their share of young families, when families are young and the children are being educated, that is not the time when fathers or mothers, for that matter, should go on missionary trips. Nor is it the time to get involved in anything that might take your focus away from the season of educating your children. When families are young, that is the season to focus on the family. Not upon that thing, not upon the other thing, but on the family. You cannot regain the time lost if you don't focus on what the season is navigating you to focus upon. So you cannot regain that time that you are to educate your family once it's lost. Once it's lost with everything It's lost forever. You can't buy back that time that was lost. That time is not to be squandered, nor is it to be misappropriated. It is to be used wisely. Secondly, Solomon also speaks of seasons in addition to time. Let's look at an example of agriculture. There are very specific seasons when planting and harvesting are to take place. To violate that season... That time specification results in a truncated crop or no crop at all. As far as animal husbandry, if you want the females of your herd to conceive, there's only a specific time in which that is possible. You can't just by willy-nilly saying, well, let's have them conceive at this time or that time. No, there's a, a window of time. The farmer or the herdsman must be well acquainted with those particular seasons if he or she wants to be productive. Timing within that particular season is critical. There is a specific time to do things within those particular seasons. Consider again the family example. During seasons of raising and educating your children, you are to be mindful of your time spent within the hours of the day. For instance... What portion of time do you spend teaching, cooking, cleaning, or chatting on the internet or surfing Facebook? How much wasted time do you spend playing video games when you should be doing something else? Solomon is implying that where your passion and your, and your, your purpose is, That is where you will spend your time. So if you're passionate about X, you will spend your time X. If your purpose is to bring a goal forth, you will then spend your time to bring that goal forth. So wherever your passion and purpose is, that's where you're going to spend your time. And that's why Solomon says, a time for every purpose under heaven. The fact remains that we are required, we are commanded to spend our time, the time that God has given us, for a purpose. But if that purpose does not coordinate with the seasons of life, then we are very poor stewards of our time simply because we have failed to understand 
the season of life in which we are living in. So we have to be very mindful of where we are in our season. A third example, permit me to give a third example. What if you find yourself in a particular season where you're not a mother or a father, or maybe you're not even a farmer or, or a herdsman, but perhaps you're a single adult, or even a young teenager, a young child. This is your season of life. The question that you must ask is, what is my purpose during this season? Now, just because that season may change, it doesn't mean that's the season now. The season is what you're in now. So the question is, what is my purpose in the season of life that I'm in at this moment? For the young child, it might be education. So you young people, as you are now paying attention to the pastor, I know you're all paying attention to the pastor, your season now is to be educated by mommy and daddy. You are to be learning from mommy and daddy. You are to be paying attention to the pastor, not playing with trucks and cars, because that is not the season. We are in the season of learning and worshiping God. So for the young child, it might be education or learning various skills or being disciplined because they're a little unruly at times and that's your season. And there's nothing to be ashamed about. That's the season. It's a wonderful thing because this is where we grow. This is where we mature. This is where we learn. And there's that season. Serving the church is another season in order to learn selfishness and 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 serving others. That's good for the children. That's their season. They're able to do that. They have young bodies. They have strong legs and strong minds and strong hands and strong arms. Let them serve. That's their season. Let them take out the garbage for mommy and daddy. Let them help with the laundry. Let them serve. That's their season. Now for the single adult, it may be an outreach to other families. Or an outreach to other singles or, or, or the elderly in the church. It may be even in the area of politics or community activity. You can assist in so many things in the local church by keeping up the physical maintenance of the building. You don't have to wait for just the same 20% of the people to do 80% of the work. The possibilities are endless. Because all you have to worry about, you young adults or you older adults, is yourself if you're single. You don't have to worry about changing diapers. You don't have to worry about anything. All you have to worry about is yourself and what you've done with your life. Now, what of the elderly or those that have grown children? Well, this is a a completely new season of life. And because it is new, it can be a bit more difficult to navigate, and yet there are endless possibilities. What about when you find yourself in a season of sorrow? That's a season a season of mourning, a season of despair, or a season of infirmity. Well, these seasons are especially beneficial. And you say, well, how is that? A despair, infirmity, uh, physical infirmity, or, or, or sorrow, how is that especially beneficial? Well, it causes us to take a moment of pause to recognize that we are but dust. It gives us a moment to pause and reflect upon God and the purpose that that we have been made. We reflect upon God, His care for us, even in times of difficulty. It's a time of our season to mature and to grow our faith and resolve and tenacity. It's a time when we are able to then focus in our sickbed or in despair or in sorrow on prayer and meditation and reading. It's a time where we learn how to minister to others in despair or others who are in infirmity. It is during these seasons that we become more contemplative. 
It's during these times when we become more appreciative for the seasons of health and wellness and, and joy. And then, when we finally approach the time and season of our death, we are more sensitive to the eternal hope that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ because God was grooming us through our times of infirmity, our times of despair and sorrow. But in order to be productive and purposeful, we must be sensitive to those particular times and seasons of life. And that's what Solomon was getting at. Consider the ontological structure of times and seasons. The ontology of times and seasons. Seasons are made up of blocks of time. Time is made up of seconds, minutes, hours, days, months, and years. Within any given 24-hour period of time, God, in His grand mercy, in His gracious mercy, deposits 1,440 minutes into your day, which adds up to 86,400 seconds for each 24-hour period. 86,400 seconds each 24-hour period. And he does this every day from the day that you are born to the day you die. He invests 86,400 seconds into your day. The rub, however, is that even though God deposits this time into your life's account, you cannot save it. You cannot save it for later and use it then. You have to use it every second that it's given to you. You must use it every single day, 86,400 seconds. At the end of each day, the original time deposit is gone, and God deposits a new set of 86,400 seconds into your 24-hour life's bank account. And so by the mercy of God in relation to time being deposited into your life's account, it is renewed every morning. And this is why the, the prophet says that the grace of God is renewed every morning because now you have the grace of God renewing 86,400 seconds into your day to bring forth the testimony of Christ, to advance the kingdom of God, to glorify His name every single day. So each and every day that time is being deposited into your life it's renewed every morning until the day when your time, and it will come to that day when your time runs out. In other words, by renewing His mercy each and every day, He's giving you another set of opportunities, and I want to stress that word, opportunities to fulfill your purpose for His glory, whatever season you're in, training your children, educating your children, serving the church, or what have you. If you squander the time, you cannot get it back. But you not only are able to not get it back, you will have a deficit in your accountability account. In other words, you've been slothful. Now you have a deficit. Now why is that? Well, because you're required as a good and faithful steward of your time to invest that time. You are to be a good and faithful steward of your time because God has blessed you with that time. So he's giving you this time to be a good steward over. Now, squandering is not the same as investing. You can excuse yourself all day long. Say, well, I'm investing my time, uh, but it could really be squandering. You'd be justifying yourself. So, so let me ask you this. So when you rest or take a nap or go on vacation, 
or to go to the park with your wife and your children or talk on the telephone with loved ones in order to either encourage or touch base with them or read a nighttime story for your children or even playing board games with your family or throwing a ball with your children. Are these squanderings time? No, these are investments of time. These activities are actually investments in purposeful things. You need to rest, which takes eight hours right out of that 86,400 seconds. But these are good things. So these are the things you invest in. Training your children, playing games with your children, going on vacation with or without your children. These are the things we invest in. Even the relaxation of watching a movie as a decompression tool, as a decompression event from the busyness of the day can be an investment of your time provided that during the day you have accomplished something worthwhile. I will not relax until I have accomplished a purpose that day. That's the rule. That's my rule. It should be your rule. You cannot watch a movie. You cannot go on Facebook. You cannot do this. You cannot do that, which is called relaxation, unless, there should be a rule, you've already produced something worthy that day. Squandering time is when you engage in mindless or purposeless activities that are either addictive, and most of these things are addictive, or distract you from your responsibilities during a particular season that you find yourself in. So if you're trying to raise your children, educate your children, and you're always shopping on Amazon, what are we to think? Are you investing or are you squandering? Unless you're shopping for educational books, that's another story. I think you understand my meaning. For young families, there's very little time. Make no mistake about it. For you young families, there's very little time to squander anything since your responsibilities are more demanding when you have a growing family. But the same warning goes for single folk and children too. Mindless activities usually cause an individual to become detached from God-glorifying purposeful activities. I, I, I marvel at some of some of these young people who are playing these video games, who just want to get to the next level. What in the world does that even mean? The next level of Mario or of whatever other game there is out there? What is, what's going on? Have we lost our mind? We have lost our mind. We, as Christians, have lost our mind. So these mindless activities make you detached from God-glorifying purposeful activities. So instead of taking control over your time, these mindless, addictive activities take control over you. Now let's consider for a moment the structure of time. In the beginning, God creates. He creates time. And time is structured according to the mind of God. And therefore, the ontological structure of time is its triune. Time is a trinity. It's structured as a trinity. When God created the universe, he did so with the construct of time, which he had to create first. He affirms in Genesis 1 that the first thing that he created was time by using the word beginning as a time stamp. And within time, God proceeds to create everything. Seasons. But time is a very curious thing. Time is created according to a Trinitarian model as past present, and future. And what is fascinating about time, what is fascinating about the 86,400 seconds that God invests in your day is that the present is only present for a nanosecond before it becomes the past. And it is that past 
that can never be regained because it is etched forever into the historical record, even if there is no written record. What we can be sure of, however, is that God keeps a record of what we have done with time and what we have failed to do with the time that he is investing in our lives. The other curiosity of time is that while the present quickly becomes the past, we are actually always heading into the future at lightning speed. And since the present lasts only for a split second, the blink of an eye, we might even go so far as to say that we are more often in the future than we are in the present. This means that whatever we do in the present is actually determining our future. Think about that. Let me say that again. Whatever we do in the present is actually determining our future and the future of others. David failed to understand the seasons in which he was living. And because he was squandering time, it cost him everything. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, David doesn't go. He sends Joab and his servants and all of Israel so that he could recline in Jerusalem contemplating all of his victories. It was the time and the season when kings were to go out to battle. This was David's time. It was, it was David's season. It was given to him to fulfill his regal responsibility to go forth to battle. That was his purpose. But instead he sends Joab, his chief warriors, and all of Israel to fight in his place. Perhaps Solomon, David's son, was contemplating this glitch in his father's stewardship over time and his misunderstanding of the season when he wrote a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. It was a time for war. But David misunderstood the season of his life, thinking it might be a time of peace. This was David's time of war and he failed to secure it. He lost this very important opportunity the minute he decided to send someone else to do what God had called him to do himself. A few lessons here. Firstly, as stated before, we must understand our own times and seasons. Secondly, there are things we must do when those times and seasons present themselves to us. There are things we have to do. We get up in the morning, we feed our children, we educate them, we must do that, or we get up and we go to work. That's something we must do. At a certain hour, we must sleep. If we don't sleep, we go insane. So we must do this. So there are things that we must do when those times and seasons present themselves. Thirdly, there are things that we only can do during certain times and seasons, such as planting, harvesting, or matters of husbandry. In other words, we cannot shirk from our responsibilities and give over our tasks to others. So, as mothers and fathers, you are responsible, you are tasked by God to educate your children. You can't give those tasks over to the government schools. You can't let Joab fight for you and all of Israel. Fourthly, whenever we fail to understand our times and seasons, we can easily, and usually we do, easily fall into temptation. Watch. Could you not pray with me? This is your time of prayer, Jesus was saying. This was David's dilemma. He was setting himself up for a dreadful fall 
into a great and destructive sin because he failed to understand his season. There's something else here, I believe, hidden in this verse. If it was the time for kings to go into battle, why didn't Joab insist that David accompany the army? Joab should have turned around and said, David, wait a minute, I'm not going. You, you got, you're the king. Hey, man, this is your task. This is your purpose. But Joab didn't say that. Knowing Joab, perhaps he didn't want to tell David to join him in the battle as the principal leader of the host because he knew that if David stayed home, Job would be top dog over the enemy and Israel would be at his command. There'd be no one but himself to answer to. He could take all the glory for himself. There may be also something else in addition to this possibility. Perhaps David didn't particularly want to go with Joab into battle after he had assassinated Abner. Maybe he didn't trust Joab. Now we cannot know for sure, of course. But David opts to stay home. Perhaps the reason he stayed home had to do with the fact that he had basically subdued all of his enemies and thought that he no longer had to fight. I'm the king. I put in my time. I ran from Saul. I hid in the caves. I became king. Now of all of Israel, united them, and I have taken dominion. I don't need to do this anymore. I did my job. I I put in my time for the kingdom's advancement. I put in my time for the glory of Christ. I'm just going to stay at home. That was a terrible decision. And we find that today. Too many people think, well, I've been in the faith a hundred years. Now I'm going to relax. Whatever the reason, David thought it best to stay at home. Paul tells Timothy that a soldier of the cross, a soldier of the kingdom of God, must always be ready to go out to battle. Notice what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. That's our purpose, pleasing God. Like so many Christians that have been in the faith for so many years, thinking that they are no longer required to go into battle, David had chosen to relax at Jerusalem rather than to exercise his responsibility as the king when it was time for him to do so. And while it was no sin to tarry at Jerusalem, and it was no sin to relax on his rooftop in and of itself, it became sin because it was not the season for David to be relaxing on the rooftop. It turned into sin because David should have been doing something else. David should have been elsewhere. He should have been fighting. He should have been educating his children instead of being on Facebook. At this point, we see another flaw in David's decision making. Not only did David relinquish his regal responsibility to a compromised man, so not only did David relinquish his regal responsibilities to a compromised man as his war chief, He failed to exhibit leadership qualities. Now here's a man of exceptional leadership qualities and capabilities. Why not go? You knew God would be with you. Why not go? And yet he fails to exercise these these great responsibilities and great qualities of leader that God had given him, investing them into something God had wanted and gives them to someone else, a man who was a questionable man of questionable character. David failed to exercise his capabilities at this time in his life when he should have been doing so. 
And this teaches us that a leader can never slack off in his leadership responsibilities, no matter how successful he was in the past. True leadership means you lead until the day you die. Moses retired when he died. Moses stopped being the leader of Israel when he died. Leadership activities must be constant and enduring. That's what makes a true leader. Or at least a leader who is safeguarded against error or worse. Now deciding to stay at Jerusalem, David sends Joab to fight against the children of Ammon and besiege Rabbah. Notice verses 1 and then 2. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when the kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed, notice they're very productive here, they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. Now here's where the, the trouble takes shape. And by taking shape, this lack of, this, this problem in David's decision making, this lack of, of, of wisdom, it takes a life of its own. This one, this one glitch started to take a life all of its own. And that is what temptation does. If it is not dealt with biblically, it takes on a life of its own. And invariably, it leads to sin and despair, if not, as it is in David's case, total destruction. Verse 2, And it came to pass in an even tide that David arose from off his bed. So think about it. Laying in bed all day. Okay, it's hot. Hanging out, Job's there sweating, fighting, killing, maiming, taking the victory. David's hanging out in his bed. Okay, it's hot. So he decides to cool off, as was the custom. He rises from his bed, walks upon the roof of the king's house. From the roof, he sees a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And we have to ask some very awkward questions. Was this event coincidental? Was this just a coincidence that David goes on the roof and Bathsheba is washing herself across the way? Now, on the outset, it may seem so, but was it merely a coincidence or a calculated sequence of events? Was David actually flirting with temptation? Did he purposely place himself in this situation so he might spy out that which was unlawful and possibly dangerous? I mean, he goes out on the roof, he had to know. He goes out on the roof, he had to know... He had to know that there were women out there washing themselves from time to time. Was he actually flirting with temptation? Did he personally place himself in a situation like this so he might spy out that which was unlawful? Now here are some simple yet suspicious observations and we must ask these questions. Now to go up on the roof in and of itself in the evening after a long hot desert day was no sin. This was a custom in Israel. Scholars assume that it was autumn when David went up to the roof, which made rooftop relaxing that much more enticing. In fact, the rooftops were flat, and each roof had a fence placed around it so no one would accidentally fall off. That was the law of God. The law of God mandated that. And so it was no wonder, especially after a hot autumn day, that people would go upon the rooftops enjoying the cooler evening. David knew that he wouldn't be the only guy on the roof because that was the custom. Everybody went on the roof after the hot day. Men and women. Secondly, it must have been noise throughout all of Israel that David stayed home. The king is not going to battle with Joab. Joab is going out with all of Israel. And all of the men of Israel 
are going with Joab, leaving the women behind. And they all knew David was home. David remained in the city instead of joining Joab and Israel in the battle against Ammon. Surely if the king remained in the city, the people knew it. You know, people talk. Third point. It must also have been common knowledge as to where the king lived. Do you think that no one knew where David lived? Come on. Come on. Everybody knew where the king lived. Did not Bathsheba know where the king lived? Did she not know that he was her neighbor? And that this rooftop was inside of her bath? Did she not know that he could just look right across and see her washing herself? Did she not know that the king of Israel, the great giant killer of Gath, was her neighbor? Of course she did. Of course she did. The fourth point, since there was no such thing as binoculars or a telescope to spy on the young woman, don't you think that they could see each other? How did he know she was beautiful? Because she's right there. He's looking right at her. And if so, was Bathsheba still willing to parade herself naked, washing herself before the king, even though they could see each other? And if she did that, why? To what end? You see, this is the tragedy of our modern day. While it is true that a beautiful woman is agreeable to the eye, especially to men, a flirtatious, immodest woman is not. Immodesty is not beautiful. Only the lustful soul desires a sexually compromised woman who is flirtatious and immodest in both her demeanor and in her apparel. And by demeanor, I refer to her body language. Fifth point. If Bathsheba was actually being immodest, why was Bathsheba being so immodest? One has to ask, why parade her beauty before another man when she belonged to her husband? And what about David's resolve? Forget about Bathsheba for a minute. What about David's resolve? Did Bathsheba think that her beauty was so astounding that a simple look by the king upon her body was enough to derail him? And if so, what, what gives with David looking upon a, a beautiful woman? All of a sudden he's out of his mind? Because he was not where he should have been when he should have been there. Was he that weak that he was compromised by the beauty of a woman? Or was it something more than a simple gaze? You know, according to the scripture, that he looked upon her. Oh, he was looking all right. He was staring. And Bathsheba had to know this. So we have to ask another question. What was Bathsheba's body language like? Was Bathsheba's body language involved? If this is indeed the case, and if she is aware of what is actually happening and promoting herself before the king, is she not an immodest temptress? These are questions we have to ask. You know, the way we read the story of David and Bathsheba, Bathsheba is some, some pristine woman that just got taken advantage by the king. Adam Clark is also suspicious. He observes, quote, how can any woman of decency and delicacy expose herself where she could be so fully and openly viewed? Did she not know that she was at least in view of the king's terrace? Was there no design in all of this? So I ask, was there not a design in this? You can always know someone by the way they dress, how they parade themselves before others, how they walk, how they put their body, how they turn this way or that way. It's all about the body language. 
You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know what a woman is like by her body language. The sixth point, whatever the situation, was it not David's obligation, even though she was beautiful, even though she was washing herself, even though he could see her, even though he was watching her and he was being tempted, was it not his duty to remove himself from the temptation? Was that not his duty as king? as a child of God, to not have his eye be so encapsulated by this woman? Was he not obligated to remove himself? But no, he enters into temptation. Did he not have many wives to satisfy his passion? Were not his wives given to him by God himself in order to secure his safeguard against sinful lusting, adultery, and murder? Of course they were. No, he asked the question. He asked the question. How do you, how does a young man who's married remain faithful without being an adulterer? Because he has his wife. God gave him the wife. Were they not enough for the king? Were they not enough to please him? Seventh point. Believing the king can have any woman he wanted. David knew I could have anybody I want. David's pride and covetous heart takes over. Beware lest ye enter into temptation. He was crossing the threshold of temptation and he believed he could have anything. I'm I'm the king, man. I am the king. So instead of being content and thankful for all of his beautiful wives, and I'm sure they were not beasts. I'm sure they were beautiful women. We read about them. They were beauties. He had this beautiful harem. It wasn't enough because of covetousness. He covets being unthankful and discontented. He covets and his covetous heart takes over. And what is so disgusting about this entire event is that David is simply concerned about satisfying his own carnal sensual appetite, seemingly caring nothing about the ramifications of his actions, the emotional damage or the national repercussions that it would cause. He was all about David. As much as we love David, This is a lesson for us today. The eighth point. What is even more astounding, more astonishing, is that David could have taken any of the single women to his bed. He could have said, well, she's married and I'm not going to go there, but I could still add to my harem. I could still have a single one. I don't need to adulterate a marriage I can have any woman I want. I can take any beautiful woman I want. I can make them my wives. He had so many. Why not another? But what he wanted, what he wanted, he wanted it because it was forbidden. And I could just weep over such a mindset. He could have had any tree of the garden, but he wanted the one that God said you can't have. He wanted another man's wife. And it was forbidden. The fruit that he lusted after was forbidden in the same way that Adam was told he could not eat. But he wanted what was forbidden. Herein is David and Bathsheba acting in the same way as Adam and Eve before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Finally, note that Bathsheba was not only bathing. And this is really 
David's calculation. Bathsheba's calculation. She was not just washing because she had to take a shower because it was hot and she was sweaty. This was a ceremonial bathing. She was ceremonially washing herself, which was customary after her menstrual cycle. And according to verse 4, David must have surmised this fact, which made it that much more tempting thinking that because now she was in a season where she could not conceive, she would be unable to conceive, and I can be free of being found out. And they both knew it. And instead of saying, when she was summoned to the king's house, I'm sorry, I'm another man's wife, she goes. And so in a calculated move of wicked cunning, David sends for another man's wife, thinking that she would be safe from conceiving so that his evil deed would be hidden from the world, but he was dead wrong. God will not be mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that also shall he reap. And David was about to reap the whirlwind. Because God here is witnessing this entire event. And as a result... God was about to bring down the hammer on David and the consequences, as we shall see, will be catastrophic. We will continue to unravel this painful event next when we watch the Davidic dynasty come crashing down upon the head of our beloved David. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.